come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 183 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. So in this episode here for you, I have my Traverse of the Threes, number six, as I have paired up Night of Terror with Bo is Afraid. Yes, I did actually get to go to the theater to see this quite long movie, and I figured just because of the titles here of Night of Terror and Bo is Afraid, it makes kind of a scared double feature, even though these are two different types of movies, so I should point that out as we have one that is a murder mystery, and the other one is a surreal nightmare journey. So then, for mini-reviews, I have my other Traverse of the Threes film, The Crawling Hand. I'm giving that one a rewatch, And then I have all the rest of them are going to be summer series prep with Dr. Satan, Violated Angels, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and Torture Garden. So I don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here for this intro, so let me get you over to my... Monthly Review. And for my monthly review for April of here in 2023, I have... Watch 37 total films. 30 of them are in the horror genre. Now, five of them are 2023 releases. Now, that's 81.08% of them are horror. So then, the horror movies that I watched are Murders in the Zoo, Malum, Black Sabbath, Seconds, Spider Baby, At Midnight I'll Take Your Soul, Spoonful of Sugar, The Vampire Bat, Blood Feast from 1963, This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse, Dajamin, I think that's how you'd say that, Mulholland Drive, Renfield, The Ghoul, The Comedy of Terrors, In Search of Darkness Part 2, Megan, Baskin, V.I., I I think that's how you'd say that, Evil Dead Rise, Tenebrae, The Crying Woman, a.k.a. La Llorona from 1933, Paranoic, The Offering, Last Night in Soho, An Angel for Satan, Night of Terror, The Crawling Hand, Bo is Afraid, and Dr. Satan, or probably Dr. Satan, actually, since this is a Mexican film. So then 13 countries represented, that would be United States, Italy, France, Brazil, Japan, United Kingdom, New Zealand, Turkey, Soviet Union, Ireland, Mexico, Bulgaria, and Finland. So then for this, my 2023 watches, the five of them are Malum, Spoonful of Sugar, Renfield, Evil Dead Rise, and Bo is Afraid. Now, my oldest watches are all tied from 1933, as I have Murders in the Zoo, The Vampire Bat, The Ghoul, The Crying Woman, aka La Llorona. In Night of Terror. Now, the average year is actually way lower than normal of 1983. Now, the highest rated is Tenebrae at 9.5. The lowest rated is actually going to be on this episode here with a 4.5. The average rating is a 7.5. So then, Not on this feed is going to be Last Night in Soho is for Where to Begin With on the T-Puts Collective. And then I also watched Baskin as part of the Nightclub podcast. It's not out as of me recording this, but that should be coming out here relatively soon. So then yearly watches, I'm at 25, 2023 watches, horror films at 114, total films 162, average year 1993, average rating 7.2, and then percentage of horror is 70.37. So then to break this down a little bit more as to how these kind of work with other like 
months and then the year to date and everything like that. So for new horror films like that are released in that year, I've got five for this month. That is tied with 2021, but that is the second highest as in 2022, aka last year, and then 2019, I had six in both of those years. The lowest is actually four with 2018 and 2020. I've watched 30 films that are released in their respective years for April. So then for horror films, this is actually my second highest. The highest was 2019 at 38. This year I'm at 30. And then it looked like in 2020 I had 26. Last year I had 22. 2021, 20. And then the lowest was 2018 at 18. So I have 154 horror films watched in the months of April. Then total films, this is coming in at tied for my second highest. This year was at 37, and 2018 was at also 37. The highest was 2019 at 42. And then 2020, I had 36, last year 34, and the lowest is 2021 at 33. I've watched 219 total films in the months of April. So then for average year, this is the lowest by far at 1983. It looks like the highest year would have been 2018 and 2019, tied at 1996, 2021 and 1995, 2020 and 1994, and then 2022 at 1992. So the average year for months of April is 1993. So then the average rating here for the month at 7.5 is tied with the highest with last year at also the same score 2021 was a 7.3 2018 7.2 2020 was a 7.0 and then 2019 was a 6.9 nice so then the average is 7.2 overall so then percentage of horror this is actually my second highest at 80.08 the highest was 2019 at 90.48 percent and then it looks like 2020 at 72.22%. Last year was 64.71%. Then 2021 was 60.61. The lowest actually was 2018 at a 48.65%. The average for the month of April is a 69.62%. Nice. So this obviously helped bringing that up and get it to that number. So then for the year to date so far, I'm at 25 horror movies that were released in this year. So I'm still kind of, it looks like, slightly back on pace there. I know in the month of October will help me get up there with that film festival that I watch, but I've watched 459 horror films released in that year. So my 114 horror films for this year right now is actually a pretty good number, it looks like. Still not where I need to be, but again, October should be a big month to help you know fix that and everything like that. So I've watched 1,925 horror films since I started keeping track. So then for total films, 162, still below on some of the stuff, but I'm hoping I can kind of make up some lost ground somewhere around there. Is So my 162, as I was saying, I've watched 2,437 total films since I've been keeping track. So this year is at 1993 right now, which is kind of interesting that this is, I mean, this month is probably helping to bring that down and everything like that, but it looks like the average rating is still 1998 across the board and that's mostly kind of where I end up I'm wondering if that'll get fixed as things kind of go along we shall see so my 7.2 for this year is actually on the lowest I've ever had so far see if that corrects itself but 7.4 is still my average rating overall and then this year's 70.37 percent of horror is also the lowest that I've had see if that'll kind of get corrected or not as we go along as 77.85 percent of everything that I watch is horror since I've been keeping track so I don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here for this intro. So let me get you over to a brief break before I get into those mini reviews. I want to say thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini review here is going to be The Crawling Hand. This is from 1963. This was directed by Herbert L. Strock. Now, it looks like the screenplay was written between him as well as Bill Idelson. The original story, though, was written between Joe Cranston, Robert Malcolm Young, and Bill Idelson. This stars Peter Breck, Kent Taylor, and Rod Lauren. This is a horror sci-fi film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.1 on IMDb and a 1.9 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being The Hand of a Dead Astronaut comes crawling back from the grave to strangle the living. So this is a film that I'd never heard of until coming across it in the horror show guide encyclopedia that I'm working through. I found it interesting that this is from the 1960s, just missing out on the 50s horror sci-fi boom that happened, and I'm now giving it a second watch as part of my traverse of the threes. 
So something I left out of that opening is I came in knowing that this was going to be cheesy as I was trying to find a copy to watch and the most popular was the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version and actually my buddy Tim Walker had said that that's how he enjoys watching this. Despite that information, I try to keep an open mind to find whatever I can positive. I love sci-fi and space in general as both are just something that amazes me. For science fiction, it's interesting to see what people come up with and with space and everything because we know a lot, yet there's still so much that we don't as well. Now, with that idea out of the way, I do find the opening conversation between our characters of Steve and Dr. Weitzberg interesting. So, these two are being portrayed by Breck and Taylor, respectively. Even more so the second time around. They don't know how Captain Mel Lockhart, portrayed by Ashley Cohen, is communicating with them. He didn't have oxygen for 20 minutes. This duo brings up that they don't fully understand cosmic radiation. So as an example, they use is that a rat was sent up and then was different upon returning. No matter what we do, cells, bacteria, and whatever else gets onto a spacecraft before it goes up, they surmise that whatever he experienced changed him and he adapted to survive. This also explains how his hand crawls when it comes back to Earth. Now, I do have an issue here, though. The first thing is that they blow up the ship before it comes back to Earth. Then there's no way this arm could have made it to Earth. It would have burned up in the ship or in the atmosphere. I can't ignore this, though, as it's during an era where they might not completely have realized it. This is a minor quibble. I will acknowledge this is a B-level 60s horror movie. The last thing I want to cover with the story, though, is that it can be hit or miss with a character of Paul portrayed by Rod Lauren. He gets choked and not killed. That's fine. This causes him to be altered, similar to what happened to Lockhart. Paul's affliction comes and goes, though, since he was introduced to a lesser amount of exposure. What I don't like is that when this happens with him in the end either, it feels like they were running out of time or money, so they just wrapped it up too neatly without explanation. There should have been just a bit more for this to work. So I should be enough for the story, so I'll go over to the acting. I think it's fine for a movie like this. Now, Breck showed emotion. I felt his frustration when his mission isn't working. A man's life is also at stake. He also is bothered when he learns what is happening in California. Now, Taylor plays well off of him as our scientist on the team. They make a good duo. Lauren is solid in his role. The issue I see with him is that he comes off quiet and brooding, so I didn't see much when he becomes evil being different. He does lash out, so there is that. But he also lashes out before he changes, so I mean, I digress. I was fine to see Alan Hale Jr. here, as I know him from Gilligan's Island. Now, we also have... Shiri Stefan as Marta Farnsworth. I thought she was pretty nice looking and attractive. She's kind of a damsel in distress for the most part here. Allison Hayes was also good looking. It is funny to see that we have a crazy Ralph character long before Friday the 13th being portrayed by Sid Saylor who was running a like soda shop. I do have to point out as a goof, I could see the character portrayed by Arlene Judge when she's supposed to be dead. She blinks at one point as well. She's supposed to be, and you can see her breathing. It is what it is though. Now also up to go into then would be the filmmaking. First would be the effects, which there aren't much. The offices and scientific supplies look real enough there. Pulling the cinematography, the framing was good for the crawling hand. The fake arm also was fine as well as the use of stop motion. I have a soft spot there. The makeup of Paul and Captain Lockhart when it turns is basic, but it still worked. Cinematography is fine. Soundtrack would be the same as it fit for what was needed. It is funny that they use the birds, the word a couple of different times. That made me chuckle. So the conclusion here, this is a low budget sci-fi movie that knows what it's doing. The concept is fine with the logical and potential explanation behind it being a better aspect. What they do to bring the crawling hand to life is the best part. Acting is decent. No one stands out or ruins it. Seeing Hale was a treat, though. This doesn't have much to work with, though. It might be more fun to watch this with a riff track, for sure. And that's what, I mean, people have told me. This is just your run-of-the-mill, B-level sci-fi horror film, in my opinion. I've actually come up with my rating, though. I think the crawling hand, for me now, is a 4.5 out of 10. And then for my second mini-review is going to be Dr. Satan. This is from 1966, directed by Miguel Moreta. This was written by Jose Maria Fernandez Usan, and it looks like the story was written by Sidney T. Bruckner. Then this stars Joaquin Cordero, Alma Delia Fuentes, and Jose Galvez. This is a crime drama horror sci-fi film that is from Mexico. 
It is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being, Interpol officer Mateos and his companion Nora are in charge of discovering and capturing the members of a shady organization that has been flooding Mexico City with counterfeit money. What they don't know is that these dollars help Dr. Aro Zemena and his research. So this is a movie that I discovered when prepping for the Summer Challenge series in the podcast Under the Stairs. So I'm going to go a little bit light on my recap as well as not give a rating. I was checking out titles that I hadn't heard from from 66. What caught my attention was the title. Being that this is from Mexico, it also intrigued me. It was also rated well on Letterboxd, so that was another factor. Other than that, I came to this one blind. So what I'm going to say is that this is an interesting one because it's actually a zombie film. Sorry if that's a spoiler, but you learn this about five minutes into the movie or so as they kidnap a guy and then turn him into one. It's a different take on voodoo zombies that came out a couple years before Night of the Living Dead. And it also is different because you get elements from like White Zombie or I Walked with a Zombie just taking a place in Mexico. Now because of that, they also factor in some religious stuff that I thought was kind of cool. Now, these type of monsters, they can talk, but not really have full conversations. They're completely loyal to Dr. Satan, who is actually the Dr. Arozamena, who is our villain, of course. But these zombies fear religious icons. I think that's being from Mexico is the reason in there. We also get what could be a ritual as well as Satan himself, maybe? But then this one also has like the crime film elements. Tomas and Nora are trying to stop this organization. And actually, let me just go ahead and say all of the main characters here are like Cordero plays Dr. Satan, a.k.a. Aros uh, Mena, Fuentes is Nora, and Galvez is Mateos, or Tomas, either way. But they're trying to stop this organization. They must tread carefully as it's been brought to their attention that somebody's using counterfeit money. This, of course, is Dr. Satan, who's the mastermind. It almost feels like an early spy or like some of those serials that they would be in earlier decades. This one has a decent little story here. I think the acting is good there. Cordero's good as a stoic doctor as well as a mad scientist. He's also ruthless, which is a good recipe for a villain. Then we also have Gina Romand, who plays somebody else in this nefarious organization that works for him. She also kind of falls for our villain. I think Galvez and Fuentes are good as our heroes. We also have a few people playing zombies like Carlos Agosti. There is Gerardo Zapeta and some other people. I'd also say that Quentin Bolnez was good, and then Judith Ruiz Azcacarga. The acting here is fine. No one really stands out, but it's also not that bad. I think that we have good filmmaking as well. Cinematography is solid. They don't really do anything, but there are some stuff to do some dramatic shots. We don't get a lot in the way of effects, but there's also early enough into cinema, lower budget film, so it's also part of it. They keep the science to a minimum, which is also good. I think the makeup for the zombies is minimal, but also fine. And the soundtrack fit for what was needed. We also get a good representation of the devil. I like that. So I'd say in conclusion, this is a solid man scientist film. This is what sets it apart is that we have a take on voodoo zombies, but religion is also mixed in and a bit of a police procedural. These are all reasons that makes this more interesting than it should be. It's also well made or made well enough. The acting was solid across the board. Not one that I can recommend to everybody. First, you need to like foreign cinema and be into this era of movies. If you like this, some of these subgenres work for you, I would say this is an interesting enough watch. So I would recommend Dr. Satan. So not going to get my rating because of the summer series, but yeah, not a decent little film. And then up next, I have Violated Angels. This goes by the original title of Okasarata Hakui. This is from 1967. This was directed by Koji Wakamatsu. This was written between Masaru Adachi, Hurokara, Wakamatsu, and Haranu Yamashita. This also stars Kara, Raiko Koyanagi, and Miki Hayashi. This is a drama horror thriller film that is from Japan. It is currently sitting on a 6.9, nice, on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being, a young man breaks into a nurse's rooming house and one by one kills them. Should also point out that this is based on the Richard Speck murders pretty quickly after those happened. But anyways, this is one I first heard about from Mr. Parka and his weekly updates. It went on a list of ones that I would watch at some point. It got moved up for prepping for the Summer Challenge series. I was assigned to 67 and this is one of the highest rated from that year. I also found this on archive.org and I figured I'd just give it a go. So, 
This one is interesting as I must give Mr. Parker credit for that information about the spec case. They lived to the events of this man coming into a dorm of nurses and killing them. It feels in bad taste, but I will say though is none of the names are used. It's just kind of overall that event inspired this. Should also say this is my first trek into the Pinku Aigi or the Pinky films from Japan. I kind of know about these is that from Mr. Parker actually that this is a subgenre that is exploitative with violence and nudity. Now, this does come with a bit artistic in nature with how it's presented. It is uncomfortable with some of the stuff, but the women are attractive, so it makes me enjoy it. Now, I don't think this one actually features rape, as that's something that's very common in those ones. We do get a lot of nudity, but it comes from fantasy and that our villain is seeing it this way. It seems like sexuality makes him uncomfortable, and he's almost tormented by it, and he lashes out to attack. So, I do think that the lack of story hinders this. It's more about the visuals. I will say that the cinematography is good. We have this framed in such a way that it's surreal. Completing that with the editing is that there's an art house vibe to this. It's an interesting route to go with the fact that it's exploitation cinema. I will credit the positives. More story elements would help. I'd also say that the acting here is good. Kara is good as our villain. I would give credit to all the nurses who are Hayashi, Koyangi, Kido, Waki, Saiguza, and Yayu. I do miss... If I mispronounce any of those names, I do apologize there. Other than that, I thought the rest of the cast was fine. The effects we get are limited. The blood looks good. This is filmed in black and white. There is a sequence or two that's in color that makes it pop. And I think the soundtrack also fits for what was needed. So there isn't a lot that I can say about this one. It's an uncomfortable watch. The women are attractive, and I think the fear they show is good as they get attacked. More story elements would help. Seeing them all new was good. I would also say that the filmmaking of this is well done. Best part there is the cinematography and the editing. I can't recommend this to everybody, but if you're into exploitation cinema, give this one a watch. Again, not going to give my rating as this could be a summer series movie, but I can't recommend this, as I said, unless the things I've said are up your alley. And that's for Violated Angels. And then another summer series movie is going to be Dracula, Prince of Darkness. This is from 1966, directed by Terrence Fisher, written between Jimmy Sangster and Anthony Hines, and it's also based on Bram Stoker's character. This stars Christopher Lee, Barbara Shelley, and Andrew Keir. This is a horror film from the United Kingdom, currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd. Synopsis being, Dracula is resurrected, preying on four unsuspecting visitors to his castle. So this is one that I originally saw right after college. I'll be honest, I didn't remember it. The reason is that I binge through a lot of these Hammer productions of these classical monsters. They tend to blend together when you do that, but this is one I rewatched as a potential summer series movie. So, for this one here is... I want to bring up the continuity. It's interesting that this sequel ignores the previous film. That doesn't do anything to upset anything, though, either. I thought that Dracula was in The Brides of Dracula, but that isn't the case. What we get here is a refreshing of how this character was killed in the original movie of Horror of Dracula. So, what I do have an issue with is that it takes about half the movie for our lead to come back. I can see why that's the case, as this is the one that Christopher Lee refused to speak lines. It does seem like there's a bit of controversy there as Lee claims that he wasn't going to speak horrible lines and only did this movie to get it made. It gave others in the industry jobs. According to the writers and Hammer as a production company, they didn't give him lines because they could pay him less. Regardless of what the truth is, it's funny to me. It also doesn't hinder this movie. My issue is that it takes forever to get this icon back on the screen. So then going back to the continuity though, I love what they're doing here with some of these things. Now we have a vampire familiar of Clove who is portrayed by Philip Latham. I love what he's doing here, as how they bring Dracula back is very hostile too. And then, from that point, it becomes a typical Dracula film, is that one person is turned, and then he's going after Diana, who is portrayed by Suzanne Farmer. And he, you know, kind of wants her as his new, like, Lucy. There's not much more to the story that you can really kind of go into other than that. I think Lee is iconic even though he doesn't have lines. I thought that Shelly was fine in her role. She's a neurotic member of the group, but I thought she worked there. I think Andrew Keir is good as his father, Sandor, who knows kind of things about the supernatural, but he also doesn't like those around him doing blasphemous things. I think that Francis Matthews is good as Charles, who is our like hero, as our lead. Farmer is solid in support. She also becomes a damsel in distress in these classics of this era. I also want to give credit to Charles Bud Tigwell, Thor Lee Walters, Latham. The rest of the cast is kind of round this out for what was needed. This is well made. Terrence Fisher being the director is partially there. He did a lot of these early horror 
films from Hammer. I also think that the effects we get are good. I thought the look of the vampires were solid. If I have an issue, the blood is a bit bright, but I have a soft spot for that. Soundtrack also fits for what was needed. This is just a solid Dracula sequel from Hammer. What is interesting is that it feels like they redid the story a few years later. It just didn't hit the plot points of Stoker's novel or have the characters, but we just have this iconic monster wreaking havoc once again. I appreciate it for that. This looks great. I don't have issues with the effects or the soundtrack. There is some charm that comes with these gothic horror films. I'd recommend this if you're a fan of Hammer, Lee, or just Dracula and this era of cinema. Once again, not going to get my rating, but I think Dracula Prince of Darkness is one of the stronger outings from Hammer in this run. Then my last mini review that's going to be a feature before I do a little bit of Twilight Zone is going to be Torture Garden. This is from 1967. This was directed by Freddie Francis, written by Robert Block, stars Jack Palance, Burgess Meredith and Beverly Adams. This is a fantasy horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being an anthology of four short horror stories that people who visit Dr. Diablo's fairground haunted house attraction show. So this was an anthology that I learned about after watching Asylum. I rather enjoyed that Amicus film and it made me want to seek out the other ones in the series. Decided to give this one a watch, of course, for prep for the Summer Challenge series. Seeing the caliber of talent in it behind the camera as well as in front of it, I was intrigued to give this one a go. So, of course, we have this framework story of a bunch of people going to Dr. Diablo's Torture Garden. Those ones are like Ronald Wyatt, portrayed by Palance, Colin Williams, portrayed by Michael Bryant, Gordon Roberts, portrayed by Michael Ripper, Dorothy Endicott, portrayed by Barbara Ewing, and then we have Carla Hayes, portrayed by Beverly Adams. And then, of course, Dr. Diablo is portrayed by Meredith. And then they actually end up running into Anthropos, who is portrayed by Clyte Jossop. Now, this is what kind of starts all the little stories. Now, the first one is called Enoch, which is a man visiting his dying uncle. And there might be a cat that is supernatural. The next one is Terror Over Hollywood, where we have a young starlet in Carla who gets into the movies, but then realizes there could be a sinister plot underneath the system. There is Mr. Steinway, who has Leo Winston, portrayed by John Standing, who is a famous pianist. He starts seeing Dorothy, and then he has a handler who doesn't want this to happen, but there could also be something supernatural trying to prevent that. And then the last one is The Man Who Collected Poe. This one features the character of Ronald visiting Lancelot Canning, portrayed by Cushing, and this guy might have the ultimate collection of Poe things. Kind of interesting here is that Robert Block, who wrote Psycho, is the one who did the writing here. I'd also say that it feels like Tales from the Hood. That crew might have borrowed some of the elements for their show here. And this one just has four fun shorts. Each one has its own little different thing going on with it. I would say Enoch might be borrowing the Poe story, the Black Cat, or at least elements from it. Terror Over Hollywood has some interesting commentary about Hollywood itself and how there you know, could be a plot of some things there. I don't want to spoil what that could be. Mr. Steinway is an interesting little supernatural, possibly, story there. And The Man Who Collected Poe has a little bit of Lovecraftian vibes where alchemy might have some things that could do with it. But I think this is a good anthology. I like that we have a singular team putting it together. The tone of all the shorts match. The connecting story that also fits there. I like what they're doing with that as we're mixing in Greek mythology with Christianity. Acting here is good across the board. We have some heavy hitters with Palance, Meredith, and Cushing. Supporting people are also good. This is well made from the cinematography to the soundtrack. It isn't a lot in the way of effects, but it doesn't necessarily need them either. I'd recommend this one if you like this era of cinema, and as well as you like anthology horror films. Once again, not going to give my rating, but give Torture Garden a go, especially if you like the things that I've said. And the two episodes that I got to watch of The Twilight Zone for this week are I Dream of Genie, which is actually kind of interesting. It sounds like this episode was the basis... It's based on the same story that the TV show was based on, but this was directed by Robert Gist. It was written by John Furia and Rod Serling, stars Howard Morris, Patricia Berry, and Lauren Smith. This is a drama fantasy horror mystery sci-fi thriller that is from the United States, currently sitting on a 6.2. Synopsis, a wise acre Janie appears from a lamp to a meek man, George P. Hanley. Hanley is used to bad luck, and he imagines how three possible wishes could go very wrong, but the genie will only grant him one wish. So this is kind of interesting, is that in his head, he plays out how his wishes are going to go, and it actually also seems like Bedazzled might be very similar to like borrowing from this. We see that Hanley at his job is kind of bullied, and we actually see Roger, who is the 
guy at work who's kind of mean to him and then Anne who he's in love with. We kind of see how these different wishes play out with them and everything like that. And then Watson is the genie. He actually comes out looking like, I don't even really know how to describe it, but he's kind of a rougher guy and everything like that. This one actually ends up in an interesting place that I wasn't expecting. And it's almost one of those things where, actually I'm wrong, Jack Albertson plays the genie. What's kind of interesting though just all about this is where things kind of end up i actually really enjoyed the ending of this one so i end up giving this one even though it's not the highest rating i end up giving this a 7 out of 10 just because it is fun and then the other episode i watched is the new exhibit this was directed by john braham this was written between charles beaumont serling and jerry soul this stars martin balsam will kuluva and margaret field this is a drama, fantasy, horror, mystery, sci-fi thriller from the United States. Currently sitting on a 7.9 on IMDb. And the synopsis is a wax museum employee fights to preserve five figures of famous murderers. So this one feels a lot like the wax museum. Just a little bit different with what they do. There is Ernest Ferguson is his boss. And then we have Martin Lombard Sinescu. Now he's married to Emma. And then her brother is Dave. And he's kind of a rougher guy there. But the wax museum's going under. So Martin decides that he wants the different wax figures to come stay with him. And this would be like Henry Desire Landrew, Jack the Ripper, Albert W. Hicks, and then Burke and Hare. Now, this is coming down to are these wax figures coming to life and hurting people that are trying to get in the way of Martin from keeping them? Or is there something else going on here? I liked where this one went. I do think that the ending's a little bit of a cheat, but I'm not going to hold that too much against this one, especially I did like the final image that we get from it. This one I gave an 8 out of 10. So I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. I am the maniac. Take heed. I am talking to you. And you. And you, if you dare tell anyone how this picture ends, if you dare reveal who the murderer really is, I'll climb into your bedroom window tonight and tear you limb from limb. I'll haunt you. Good night. Sleep tight. Pleasant dreams. <laughs> and for my first featured review is going to be Night of Terror. This is from 1933, directed by Benjamin Stoloff. Now we have a, quite a few writers on this one, as it looks like it was done between Beatrice Van and William Jacobs did the screenplay, and then it looks like the story The Public Be Damned was written by Willard Mack. This stars Bella Lugosi, Wallace Ford, and Shelley Blaine, while also featuring Bryant Washburn, Tully Marshall, Gertrude Michael, George Meeker, Mary Fry, Matt McHugh, Edwin Maxwell, Pat Harmon, Otto Hoffman, Eric May, Dave O'Brien, Richard Powell, Oscar Smith, and Emma Tansy. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from... The United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being, the heirs of a family fortune are required to attend a seance at the spooky family mansion. However, throughout the night, members of the family are being killed off one by one. So that's a bit misleading, but it is what it is. So this is a movie that I discovered through podcasts. It was covered on one of the many ones that I listened to, and I'm not entirely sure which. I decided to give this one a go as I needed a horror movie from 33 and figured this would be an interesting featured review here for my Traverse of the Threes. Other than that, I knew that Lugosi was in this one and it was another one from his filmography that I could knock off. So to get into some featured notes then about the key people here, I'll start with our director of Stoloff. I covered him last year with The Hidden Hand. Now in total, he had 50 in this role. I've seen two. He has a third one in genre, which is The Mysterious Doctor from 1943 that I have not seen as of yet. Then to our writing team, I'll start with Van. She has 24, and I've only ever seen this one. Only one in genre as well. Then to Jacobs, it's very similar. He has 16 credits. I've only seen this, and only one in horror. 
Then we have Mac. He has written 38. He has one from the genre from 1925 called The Monster. I have not seen that one as of yet, so this is the only one that I've seen. Now, lastly, Letterboxd has somebody named Nielsen. This is the only work they've ever done, though, is a writer. So moving to our cast, I'll start with The Legend of Lugosi. I've now seen 29 of his 137. He's tied for my fourth most seen actor with that number. That's also good for 21% of his works. In genre, I've seen 28 of his 60 for 46%. Then over to Ford, I believe he was covered when I did Freaks last year. He's someone that I've seen with six of his 121 credits. He's worked the likes of Hitchcock with Shadow of a Doubt and Spellbound. I've seen four of his six with Freaks, This, The Mummy's Hand, and The Mummy's Tomb. I just need to see One Frightened Night and Ape Man, which I think that last one also features Lugosi. Then last will be Blaine. I've seen one of her 77 works, and this is the only one that she's done in genre. So then, to get in the movie itself, the opening credits are done where we're seeing a crystal ball, and then we see like the character name and their face appear. I did like this touch. We then see a couple that is parked. A maniac happens upon them, killing them both. So this character is being credited by Edwin Maxwell. I actually think there's some trivia here saying that Bela Lugosi played this role for the most part, but I'll come back to that when I do some trivia. But then, this killer's calling card is to leave a newspaper article about the things that he has done and pins them to the victims. We then shift to the estate that belongs to the Reinhardts. The family that is the, you know, head of this family is the uncle of Richard, portrayed by Marshall. Living with him is his niece, Mary, portrayed by Blaine. She is to be married to a professor, Arthur Hornsby, portrayed by Meeker. He seems like he might live there while he conducts experiments. His goal is to create a serum that will allow suspended animation. This could help with surgery and the like as a different form of, like, anesthesia. He is going to be buried alive while his colleagues monitor him to see if it works. I should also include that he is engaged to be married to Mary, as I believe I've already actually said that. Now, also in this house is Deeger, portrayed by Lugosi, who is the butler. He is married to Sika, portrayed by Frey, who is the housekeeper. Now, she's also a psychic that goes into trances. Deeger doesn't like it, though, and Mary doesn't either unless it is important, which we'll see that come back into play later. Things then take a turn when the maniac shows up. He sneaks into the laboratory of Arthur while he's working. He doesn't see him, though. So then this killer flees to avoid being seen. That is until Richard is in the room alone. He then kills this old man. This in turn causes Tom Hartley, who's portrayed by Ford, to show up. He is chasing after Mary and now a story. This also brings John, who is portrayed by Washburn, and his wife Sarah, portrayed by Michael, to the manor. John is brothers with Arthur. I believe that is the connection. The will also has to be read. In it, it splits up the estate between the surviving members. This includes Arthur, Deeger, Sika, and Martin, portrayed by Smith, who is the chauffeur. So it's kind of interesting that in the will, the head of this family estate wants the people that have been working for him to also get a part of the money, but then the maniac is also nearby and continues to kill. He might not be the only one as someone is using this as a scapegoat to gain more of the inheritance. That's part of the will is that as people are killed off who are supposed to inherit it, the other surviving members get that share. So that's how I'll leave my recap introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that this one becomes an interesting murder mystery. It also has elements of things happening by circumstance as well. We have this maniac who's killing people. He targets a young couple and then it's from there that it's scaring the people of the area as we actually get it cut to a bunch of different people. And it's also some good editing here where one person will finish a line and the next person will say it, a la something you'd see in like Austin Powers. So then the maniac is just a killer who goes about at random. He has a cool M.O. of pinning the newspaper articles on his victims. What I like here is that the news is sensationalizing these crimes. This maniac is using that to his advantage. This is a direct correlation to things even today where our news will say things that they probably shouldn't and have stuff printed, but you know they still do it regardless for selling stuff. Now, with that explored, let me go over to the murder mystery stuff. This feels like it could be a stage play. We have minimal sets and location. I love this manor. There are light elements of the old dark house with some passageways and stuff, but that doesn't come about until a reveal later. There is an initial murder of Richard that spirals his family. It could derail the experiment that Arthur is conducting. There are also a lot of other suspects in turn red herrings. Anyone that is in the will could be killing the others. It also could be using killing those that are in the will to help someone get more money. There are also some built-in racism here, unfortunately. 
because Deeger and Seeker are different. They have beliefs that are not normalized, and they are immediately accused. I'd even go as far to say is that the police are bumbling as they're led by Detective Bailey, portrayed by McHugh. I did guess who the killer was, but it was late. If you have a keen sense, I think you can work this one out. What makes this work, though, is the acting. I thought that Lugosi was good as our butler. It is interesting that he gets top billing, but he doesn't have a lot of screen time. I think there's some trivia about this as well. If anything, I would say that Deeger, Tom, and Mary share that responsibility. There's also an interesting dynamic between Ford, Blaine, and Meeker. The latter disappears for a good part of the story due to his experiment, but Tom is after Mary, even though he knows that she's engaged. I found this to be a bit racy, to be honest, and it does seem like Tom might be a better fit, but she is engaged already. I'd say that Ford, Blaine, Washburn, Marshall, Michael, Meeker, Frey, and the rest of the cast rounded us out for what was needed. Special credit to Maxwell as his maniac, just for how wild he looks and acts. I wrote that line there, not realizing that Lugosi actually plays it for a good portion of this movie, so I digress on that thought. Then from there, I'll go over just to the acting then. I think the cinematography here is solid. It didn't stand out or do anything that took me out of it. I'll give credit for that. Now, the setting of this is good. That is why it feels like a stage play. You could do this with minimal sets. We don't get a lot in the way of effects, but it's also early into cinema, so I'm not shocked there. The look of the maniac was good. He just looked so dirty. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack was fine as well. So then what I was talking about here for some of the trivia is that although Maxwell is credited as playing this character, it is Lugosi himself playing the bulk of the role in a heavy makeup disguise, and his features can easily be recognized in spite of it thanks to his mesmerizing Dracula stare. There's no match for Edwin's eyes, nor the rest of his facial features with the maniac. This is part of the Son of Shock package of 20 titles released to television in 58, which followed the original Shock Theater release of 52 features one year earlier. This one was one of the 11 Columbia titles and the other being 61 of Universal titles. Some publicity productions still show Lugosi wearing a mustache. He has none in this finished film. Was filmed from March 1st to 13th of 33, released on April 24th. This is almost regarded as a lost film as it was rarely shown in recent decades. And by 2019, Columbia still has yet to release it on home video despite the value of Lugosi being in the cast. Working title was He Lived to Kill. This is one of the group of features in which Lugosi is given top billing for only a marquee value while only having a supporting role in the film. So in conclusion, this is a solid little movie. The problem is that I run into this that it feels like others I've seen from the era. It doesn't do a lot to stand out from those ones. There are good performances here. The best being Lugosi, even though he's relegated to being a secondary character. The rest are solid as well. I do like the setting. It's interesting to have this maniac attacking the manor and the implications that come from it. I would say that this is well made. If you like the era or out to watch the filmography of Lugosi, then give this a go. Be warned, it's from 33, and the copy that I watched wasn't in the greatest shape. I believe I watched it actually streaming on Pluto TV for free. So my rating here for Night of Terror is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over the trailer of my second featured review. I am so sorry for what your daddy passed down to you. But I wanted a child, the greatest gift of my life. I'm visiting my mother tomorrow. It's mom. I'm just calling to say that I'm so, so, so excited to see you tomorrow. You're my angel and I love you. Okay. I love you. Okay, bye, sweetie. I love you. Are you at the airport? I'm on my way. I just... It's not safe, is it? What do you think I should do? I'm sure you'll do the right thing, sweetheart. <laughs> Welcome back. I hit you with my car. What? I know. What? What is this? That's my little assistant health monitor. Feeling sad about going home, Bo? Must feel totally unreal. I'm supposed to be leaving. I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> You will walk many miles. Dozens will become hundreds. Hundreds will become thousands. 
Your adventures will continue for years and years. I should get home. I know. Do you want the truth now? And for my second featured review here is going to be Bo is Afraid. This is from here in 2023. It was written and directed by Ari Aster. It stars Joaquin Phoenix... Patty Lupin and Amy Ryan, while also featuring Nathan Lane, Kylie Rogers, Dennis Minochet, Parker Posey, Zoe Lister Jones, Armin Nahapetian, Julia Antonelli, Stephen McKinley Henderson, Richard Kind, Haley Squires, Julian Richings, Bill Hader, Alicia Rosario, James Chetkovsky, and Catherine Bunruby. This is an comedy drama horror film that is a co-production between the United States, United Kingdom, and Finland. This is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being, Following the sudden death of his mother, a mild-mannered but anxiety-ridden man confronts his darkest fears as he embarks on an epic Kafka-esque odyssey back home. So this is a movie that is wild. I wanted to see it when I heard that Aster, you know, had wrote and directed this one. Even more so that had Phoenix starring. I missed this during opening week as it came out the same time as Evil Dead Rise. The runtime also scared me a bit. Upon seeing this in the theater, I have an infant, so staying awake can be difficult, but I end up finding time on a Sunday to go to the theater and, you know, make it a featured review when I learned that it was actually horror. As I was probably going to end up seeing this one regardless are not so you know it is what it is for getting the movie itself let me do some featured notes here and i will start with our director as he's one of my favorite modern people in this role now he has 13 credits i've seen three all are in horror in my opinion with hereditary midsomar and then this he did have two shorts before this one as well which are herman's cure all tonic and Bo, the basis of this one here that is a short film and then this is obviously the extended version as for a writer, it is the same three that I've seen. He has 12 total works. He did write Bo as well in the genre. He didn't do that Herman's Cure All Tonic one, though. Then to our cast, I'll start with Phoenix. I've seen 11 of his 61 projects. Out of genre, I've seen Joker, Gladiator, The Master, and Walk the Line. I consider Signs and this to be horror, but according to Letterboxd, they're not. His first in genre, according to Letterboxd, though, is going to be Polaris. That doesn't look to be out yet. Then over to Lupin. I've seen two of her 52 works. Out of horror, I've seen her in Summer of Sam. In genre, she only has Sweeney Todd, a concert version from 2001. I'll then look at Ryan. She has 43 credits, and I've seen six. Out of genre, I've seen Birdman, Gone Baby Gone, and Capote. Close to horror was War of the Worlds from 2005. Officially, it is just goosebumps for her. I also wanted to pull in Posey and Lane. So I'll start with the former, as she has 87 movies. I've seen nine. I've seen Days and Confused, Best in Show, and Superman Returns. She has six total in genre. She started with Scream 3, Frankenstein, Blade, Trinity, and The Eye, and then this. I've seen all of those. Now, she was also in a Scream documentary called Still Screaming. She also has something upcoming called The Parenting, which isn't out yet. Then Lane, he has 69 works. Nice. I've seen six. I've seen Toy Story, The Lion King, and Goldmember. Austin Powers. His closest in horror was... This, as well as Adam's Family Values, which I consider both of them to be close enough. So then let's get this movie here. As I know this is going to be divisive and questioning what genre it should be, as I've already seen people doing it in group chats, but comedy and drama are the first two. This movie goes down probably more into the dark comedy realm, but I can also see the horror elements. I thought that I needed this disclaimer here before I gave more of my recap. So we start this off following Bo Wasserman, who is Phoenix for this one. He originally see him in therapy with a character played by Henderson. Bo is supposed to be going to visit his mother of Mona, portrayed by Lupin. His therapist asks how he feels about this, as it's been a while. 
Bo doesn't answer the question, and when he does, he's kind of just like, oh, it hasn't been that long, but they kind of start figuring out that it has. He also, as I said, doesn't think it's been that long. Bo is asked what his medication is doing for him, and he ends up getting prescribed a different one. It is specifically made clear that he needs to take it with water. It is from there that we see how this man lives. He is scared, and the area that he looks in looks rough. There is a dead man on the ground that people ignore. He is chased by a tattooed man into his building. Bo tries to get sleep, but a neighbor keeps putting notes under his door to keep his television sound down. His TV is off, though. This gives Bo anxiety to the point where he oversleeps. When he goes to leave, his luggage and key are stolen. He has been ignoring his mother's phone calls and dreads telling her what happened. She is disappointed to hear that he isn't coming. Bo tries to make it work. This leads to a series of unfortunate events. People from the neighborhood keep getting into his apartment and they tear it up. He is hit by a car, then nursed back to health by a family messed up from the loss of their son who was in the military. There are Grace, portrayed by Ryan, and Roger, portrayed by Lane. He also has a run-in with their daughter of Tony, portrayed by Rogers, and then Jeeves, who is portrayed by Menoshet, a man who served with their son in the military. We also see events from Bo's past with his mother that shaped him into who he is. Things aren't as they are or as they seem, and how we perceive ourselves is different from those around us. Bo is forced to face the facts and stand up for what he believes in to survive. So that's how I'm going to leave my recap introduction to the characters. If you couldn't tell, this is a hard one to talk about. Visually, this movie is stunning. I'll go ahead and say that the surreal dreamlike feel is wonderful. It almost feels like a fairy tale that is still grounded. I did rather enjoy this aspect of the movie. I'll credit the cinematography here. It blurs the lines of reality and quite a bit of that is due to the character of Bo. We are seeing things from his perspective. Now, when the lights came on after watching this, I was wondering what I just saw. What is interesting about this, though, is how it wraps up. It explains it at the conclusion, actually, or at least gives you a bit more and that's what I needed for you know to gather my thoughts I did pick up on some of the things right before that as well I'm not fully sure if I got everything so I did want to say that this is a movie about guilt and codependency though this came from Lane who appears in this movie as Roger when I saw that it helped click things home I'm not going to spoil this movie as I don't know if I could fully flesh out more than that and I, I would need a second watch to try to do that so but I'm going to do what I can here Bo is a loser of sorts. I feel bad saying that, but this is what Aster was going for. I did see in the trivia as well that he lacks confidence. What is interesting is that he can't decide either. When bad things happen to prevent him from making his flight, his mother guilts him to still come. I've felt bad about not being able to figure what out to do in traveling to see family and friends. Sometimes life doesn't work out and what you must figure out is what to do from there. Bo doesn't do this though. This also makes him a pushover. He's a timid man, which contributes as well. Phoenix does an amazing job with this portrayal. Seeing the different things that he goes through is amazing. Now, sticking with this, I want to bring back something that I said earlier about the surreal feel. We are seeing things from the point of view of Bo. Is the neighborhood he lives in good? No. Is it as bad as he perceives it? Probably not. There are also little things that Bo sees that will correlate back into things later. I'm more aware of what is going on when it comes to Aster movies, as I know he is meticulous about what we're seeing on the screen. I'm glad, though, hence, I can say that this is what you need to pay attention to. The idea of codependency is another one to look at. Bo is a young man who is portrayed by Naha Petian, goes on a cruise with his mother. Her younger version is Lister Jones. It is on this cruise that he meets Elaine, portrayed by Antonelli, and falls in love. She tells him something and he hangs on it well on into his adult life. Bo also heavily relies on his therapist and mother to tell him what to do. I'm not sure if I can go into more for the story, so let me go over to the cast. I think what we get here works in such quirky ways. Lupin doesn't show until late, and I like how she factors in with Bo, her son, of course. Now, we also have like Ryan, Lane, Rogers, Menoshet, Parker Posey, Lister Jones, Nahapetian, Antoinelli, Henderson, Richard Kine, Squires, and even Richings. There isn't a bad performance here. They all play different parts in directing Bo to where he ends up, and some of them play such quirky characters that it works so well. Now, before I do some trivia, all that's left then would be filmmaking. I've already said how good the cinematography is. The effects are also solid. What is interesting is that I'm not actually sure how much of these we get. There is a surreal dreamlike feel. Because of that, I like how they work. 
I can be forgiving with if there is like CGI or something because it's almost like a nightmare at times, and that is where the horror elements come in. Do I think it fully falls into that genre? No, but I'm not sure else you'd put this. Other than that, the soundtrack also helped to build the atmosphere as well. So there's some trivia that I'm probably not going to do, but this was initially described by the director and writer Astor as a four-hour-long nightmare comedy. The runtime of the theatrical cut runs just one minute shy of three hours. This was speculated to be an expansion of the short film Bo, as well as the theatrical adaptation of a leaked 2014 draft script, also entitled Bo is Afraid, both directed and written by Astor. This was later confirmed as many scenes presented in the trailer of the film coincide with a portion of that script. Bo is Afraid was initially supposed to come out in 2022, but it was delayed because Astor said it's not finished and I'm a perfectionist. I take the entire manufacturing process very seriously despite time and money reflections. Astor A24 pulled out what is characterized as an April Fool's Day prank on the movie audience at the New York Alamo Draft House. They had purchased tickets for a special showing of the director's cut of Astor's 2019 horror film Midsommar. Astor instead screened an unannounced preview of this about a month before its actually opening date. Lane described this as a Jewish everything everywhere all at once and an epic tale of guilt and codependency, the story of his life. The film was originally titled Disappointment Boulevard when it was announced in 2021. Asser said that he wanted to put the audience in the experience of being a loser. With a runtime of 2 hours and 59 minutes, this is the A24's lengthiest production, with the theatrical cut being 8 minutes longer than the director's cut of Asser's previous movie, Midsommar. Phoenix had sharpened pins installed into a bandaged hand to poke him painfully if he used it. He also would simulate the torso injuries. He had a paper binding clips clapped to his stomach to help facilitate a realistic limp. Astor described this movie as if you pumped a 10-year-old full of Zoloft and had him get your groceries. Not sure what that means. Bo is Afraid is meant to be Astor's directorial debut, actually. In advance behind-the-scenes featurette uploaded by A24, Astor described Bo is Afraid's plot as a Jewish Lord of the Rings, but he's Bo just going to his mom's house instead. Longtime Astor collaborator Billy Mayo was speculated to play the lead role until his passing. To promote this film, there were plans to show it in place of a children's film to unsuspecting families in the cinema, as was done with Midsommar. However, no simmer yet to agree to do that. And then in the beginning of this movie, the logo of the fictional Mona Wasserman Corporation is shown after the distribution and production company logos. Didn't know that. So in conclusion here, this is one that isn't much more that you can say about it, in my opinion, or at least with just one viewing. It is a journey, for sure. We have an amazing performance from Phoenix, but I come to expect that. There's a great cast around him. I like the story that it's telling. There is more to the surface with how things are presented, and that helps with the atmosphere. It has things that aren't natural. We also are seeing things from the distorted reality of a troubled mind. This is one that I'm going to need to revisit. I can't recommend it to everybody, but if you're into A24 or Aster, give this one a watch. It is one of his more ambitious efforts from this strong, young filmography. So my rating here from Bo is Afraid is going to be an 8 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section as I don't really know what I would do for that. So let me get you over to one last break before I close out the show. I would like to welcome you back. And then just to close everything out here, if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have right on the show, you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show, just let me know in that email. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's DavidOSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is, on both of them, the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any, because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. 
And for my next episode, it's going to be another Traverse of the Threes. And I'm going to be a parent up. I'm going to spring and go ahead and rent, I believe, because I don't think it's on anything streaming, is Candyland. That'll be the 2023 release. And I'm going to pair that up with Secret of the Blue Room. This is actually the remake that I almost sat down and watched that I realized that came out the following year with a more familiar cast. So those will be the two featured reviews. I know that last one is a murder mystery, so I thought it kind of would pair up as an interesting double feature there. I'll have another older Traverse of the Threes movie. I actually believe it's The Wicker Man. I believe that came out in 1973. Regardless, I'll have an older movie that I'll also watch as a mini-review that I've already seen before. And then I'll have more summer series prep movies, I'm sure, on top of that. Try to see if I can also get another 2023 rewatch in there. We shall see. So I don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here. So what I will say then is thank you so much for listening. Whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and doing have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending.